Okay, let me uh, open our time together in prayer. Father God, we thank you so much uh, for this beautiful morning. Father, we just love you so much. And Father, we're just truly humbled uh, just to be in your presence. And Lord, every time that we come to you in prayer, every time that we come to your word, Father, we uh, just come to see more and more of the beauty of your majesty. Father, your goodness and grace and mercy. Uh, we just are in awe of this great privilege to be your children, to be entrusted in your word, and to have such a great privilege to be in the fellowship of your word together as a group of believers here. And so, Father, we just pray your spirit will work in a mighty way today to give us eyes to understand and see uh, what uh, you have given to Peter uh, through inspiration to give to us even in application as we navigate uh, this life um, in Christ. And so we just commit this time to you and your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to, uh, good morning. Hmm, that is warm purple. What do you think? Yes, there are. And Betty, there's little kids in this room too. Yes. We uh, we're on chapter three, so why don't you go ahead and open up your Bibles to chapter three of First Peter? And last week we spent a great deal of time in the way of introduction, some context, but also to uh, do a little reverse uh, action to go back and to try to pull together some of the the key. Uh, themes and principles that we've been pick, we picked up in the first couple of chapters of First Peter, and my goal is to uh, my target is to try to finish at ten fifteen, so that allows time for I know that's sort of the end time, and um, I need some very important guests at the front door. That's going to be Drew. No, actually, it's a sheep. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a, it's a drop off, so we're going to. But um, so as you're as you're as you're in that passage, um, and again, so important for us to kind of as we look at uh, God's word as the context of that. And I want to go ahead and begin with the introduction of this passage, but just to give you some thought considerations going into this topic of instructions to wives. The first thing I will submit to us is that I'm going to say it applies to all of us in this room. Specifically in the teaching as we go through, and it's Peter's direct instructions, is that this is the third phase of, started back in chapter 2 with a civic, uh, talking about responsibility with respect to civic, then there was this workplace or slave master, and then to this aspect of the home. And then in chapter verse 7, all of a sudden, the word husband comes into play. So we're going to hit that next week. But just for the purpose of trying to get uh, a perspective and maybe some shared responses from you, but these are some things that, as we've gone through the passages, that I want to reflect on. The first thing is the fall. As I went back to Genesis and I, I'm thinking about the fall and the effects of that fall, because as we come to understand what the instructions are specifically to these wives about submission to their husbands, and specifically within the context of a believer and a non-believer. In this case, in the first six verses, we have a believing wife and a non-believing husband. And we're going to try to understand specifically that that's the case. And why that is so challenging. But I, I go take us all the way back to the fall itself. 
in literally every institution of creation that has struggled with the fall. I mean, isn't it, uh, it's Romans, it speaks to this groaning, you know, and it all goes back to that. Well, as I think about marriage, um, marriage is not excluded from that. In fact, it goes back to Genesis 3, where it literally was specifically stated that that's where it's going to start, conflicts. We'll go back to that in a little bit. And so Peter is speaking to these persecuted believers, these Christians, and specifically now he's moving us into this suffering, this persecution that may be encountered within the home, and specifically within marriage. In other words, is there possibly, could there ever be suffering in a marriage? Rhetorical question. Rhetorical. And... Another rhetorical question. Could it ever be that there would be suffering in a marriage, specifically in a Christian marriage? Well, I'm going to take us back to 1 Peter chapter 2. And this verse specifically, good morning. Here, in this passage we're going to look at, as well as what we've seen in the previous verses in chapter 2, we will be evil spoken of because of our faith and because of our good deeds. It says specifically that when they speak in verse 12 of chapter 2, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. I love that verse because I believe that it is, it's going to manifest itself ultimately through a godly wife potentially, over time, that conducts herself in a Christ-like manner, potentially to to God honoring that conduct to salvation of her husband. So, again, Peter knows that we're going to suffer for the sake of Christ. And the the spectrum that we have is these passages going back, and in your Bible, if you have a a study Bible, it's broken off into sections. It started in verse chapter 2, verse 13 through 17, which was this whole teaching of the submission to government or the civic responsibilities that we have. Okay, Then from there, Mark went on to teach about the submission to master, specifically the relationship between master and slave in verses 18 um, through chapter 3, which is now this aspect of the workplace itself. Is there, is, that's an example for us of that relationship that we have of the master-slave. And now in chapter 3, it goes to the home. Now, within this is that I'm going to say that there is a spectrum, okay? So now let's just give, go back to the examples. Is that, have any of you personally been, let's say, persecuted within the civic realm, within a political realm? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. Buddy? Right, right. Right, but, but what would we agree, though, with, from the standpoint within this, this spectrum, is it like really bad? Is it worse? Or is it, it's not too bad. It's not the best, right? Or it's just, it moves on this, okay? What about in the workplace? Are you being, is it real bad? We, we got a we got a slide for you today, Marlene. We're going to talk about when when is it appropriate to disobey, okay? But what for the most part, even within a workplace, and I'm looking around here, we are. You know, we're not like being 
I didn't get hit last week by my, my employer, you know. But okay. It, okay. So, Mike, what you're saying, okay? Let's let's just contrast what what Connie was saying, you know, like in her workplace, ah, it's not so bad. In fact, the spectrum is of many be kind of the regarded to maybe the chaplain, which is a little bit worse, okay? Now, within the home, within the home itself, what we also agree is that there is a spectrum from the standpoint of the level of persecution, the level of suffering that may exist within the relationship, right? The point is, is that it's always going this way and back and forth. And we will find ourselves in this life continually moving within the spectrum, Okay? Now, what Peter has been teaching us to this point is that he's taken this sphere of where we're at in life, where his readers are at, his listeners, but also for you and I. In fact, what Mark is going to do, he's going to add to the spectrum in a couple of weeks. <laughs> Start to go into the church. It goes from there. But just so far today, it's up to these three specific areas. So, on any given days, as you navigate as a believer, you're going to find yourself saying, yeah, how's it going today? When you go to work tomorrow, or when you're within the home, and that rules relationships. And so, as, again, go with me on this, as I look at the choice examples that Peter gives, is that he tends, because of a simply an understanding of where his readers are at, it's really more into this range as in here. In other words, it's tough going. Okay? Tough going. And it's a situation where, <laughs> let's take the, the civic example, okay? Um, comparing and contrasting the, the time of Peter writing this when you got Nero on the throne, opposed to Obama <laughs> in the seat, okay? Now we, now we could make our own go off on tangents if we, we choose to on that. However, is that Obama is not killing people directly. Because of a choice, indirectly. Okay, we're going to go there. But um, it's a worst case scenario, okay? Same thing with the master slave. It talks about abuse itself, okay? A worst type of scenario. And now he moves to the home. And if he is addressing believers, what would be potentially the worst case scenario would be a believing spouse with an unbeliever. You know what I'm saying? In other words, an unbelieving husband with a believing wife. Now I'm going to draw an understanding to that because we get to this is what does he know? Alright, so go again, go with me on this thing. Peter is writing and so what does he... I'm going to make some conclusions. So what did he already know? Okay, so from a Jewish law standpoint, what would he know? He would know that a woman is regarded as a thing. In other words, she was owned by her husband. In many ways, it was no different in Jewish law. It was the same level of perspective of ownership of owning a wife like it did owning sheep. Okay, Within that culture. right? Understand that. On no account could that wife leave him. Only he could dismiss her. In fact, more importantly is that it would be unthinkable in a, in a Jewish law situation that she would change her religion <coughs> while her husband 
did not the unthinkable, which is the example that we're looking at within this passage about a believing wife and an unbelieving husband. Okay, what about what about just the Greek civilization? The Greek civilization of the day was that it was a woman was viewed as having absolutely the existence was completely she had no independent existence, nothing at that point. In fact, she had no mind of her own. She had no mind of her own. And her husband could divorce her literally at impulse. Now, what about, what did he know about Roman law? And I can't pronounce this, but I did look up something, and there was this law that existed under Roman, which was this patera potestas, which basically meant that you were under the father's power, was this Roman law that existed at the time, uh, which gave the father literally every right to even control the life of or death of that spouse. And when the, let's say the daughter, when the daughter would marry, is that that right or that patera, patera potestas, that father's power, was then given equally to the husband, new husband. So that's what, that's what Peter knew at the time. And so therefore, as he's writing to these now he's talking about the home, he has given a, a worst case type of scenario. I submit that because I'm going to say also is that the whole thing is, applies to all of us and that we are all subject to, to God. We're all subject to us. We've been commanded to do that specifically in Scripture, to submit ourselves. So, worst case. And so that's helpful as we go through this to understand where he is going with this perspective on it. Now, as a commentator, you could say, well, yeah, Dave, but that's, you know, a lot of this stuff's old, but we all know New Testament. We all know, you know, Galatians 3.28, that what? We are, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male or female. We are all one in Jesus Christ. Correct, we are. However, in fact, we see that Paul expresses literally the same types of, of positions on this. However, our culture today is, is that what do you take with an understanding of that and what do you do with the, literally the commands that scriptures give us with respect to submitting to your own husbands? Now, one of the questions more or less was, the first question was a little bit about our culture today and this command for us within scripture for us to be submissive to their husbands. What do you think? In, in, is it difficult for us as Americans to even identify with the setting of this text? Yes or no? What are your thoughts? Okay. For part of the discussion is I want you to think about it from the perspective of the of the wife and then I'll look at it also for discussion from the perspective of the husband in that culture. From what you know, for example, what like what did Peter know about either the, whether it was the Roman, the Greek, or in this case the Jewish law itself, and he is aware of a situation where there is a believing wife in a relationship with an unbelieving husband. Okay, so what's it like? <laughs> what would it be like? I, I wasn't there. You weren't there. But what do you think it might be like? I mean, today's world, you know, Islam and 
wife became a believer, I'm not making with her death for being infidel. I've got to imagine that in society where Rome is oppressing Christians, if a non-believing husband has a believing wife, the ability to put her to death just simply for... It, but what you're getting at is, is that it's, it is so problematic for that husband that that would be the course of action that he would take. Why? Because he doesn't fit into the culture. In, in other words, he's, got, he's embarrassed. He's got a bad situation in his home. So therefore, put her to death, potentially. Okay, that's that's why sometimes it's difficult for us to look at it from there. Okay, now go go with me. What about this wife, though, in that culture? Understanding that, what are your thoughts there? Largely, what Peter was getting at that in that culture, in order for the wife to have any chance of converting the husband, she had to be quiet and submissive, because if she spoke out, it was dead meat, so to speak. Because of her position, she had to be quiet and submissive and example of Jesus in a quiet manner. Because she wants to obey God, but she has to submit to both. How do you obey God and submit? Yeah, I often wonder, you know, let's say if there was one of those believing wives that was literally there under Peter's feet at the teaching of, in other words, to say, what was it? What is she thinking? What are, you know, in other words, was the husband not there? Where was he? Obviously, would not have been there. But yet, it's her her new identity in Christ that really is at point here. So, in other words, when you think about that new identity that she has in Christ within this culture, it is now outside, literally, a whole new sphere of submission from her perspective, counsel, godly counsel. She's getting, they, you know, she's getting it from Peter, another man. Something to think about as you kind of go into this. And I, I share that because I use the spectrum as the worst situation possible. The challenges that it presented. I think in our culture today, it's a little different. But I think you hit on it, Cheryl, because I believe that it's, it's applicable. And so therefore, we're going to get into some of the things as far as... Um, even how that wife chooses to handle the situation, whether that's in silence or it's in here. You need to read this to become a believer in Christ. I mean, you know, I, I need you to. You got two weeks to get this down and accept Jesus, so that our relationship can be a Christian marriage. Okay. I think um, what you wife will not there's a subtle thing I want you to look at here and I you know how in Hebrews um, it talks about um, Hebrews Hebrews 12 verse 1 I'll just read it it says therefore we also since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses let us lay aside every weight and, and it calls and the sin which so easily ensnares us okay and that type of sin is the subtle sin that it, it's the catch. Because I was trying to reconcile is that, is that what is really the sin issue that, that Peter's trying to draw out of this woman? And it literally is, he brings it back to adornment, doesn't he? The outward appearance. Why, what, how important is that? And what are your motives behind that? And the words itself, it says, without a word. We're going to talk about it. Is that What does that mean? Not speaking at all? Or is it not saying certain things? 
We'll talk about that from the standpoint is that for a woman, I believe he's pointing to very specific types of sins that are easily ensnared upon. Every one of us have those sins that so easily ensnare us. In Scripture, the specifics of those sins are just throughout the Gospels so deep where the examples that come to mind is, is that Jesus was teaching about tax collectors. And he, and he goes to the tax collectors and they say, well, what should we do? And they, Jesus says, just tax what you should tax, right? Because that was the sin that so easily ensnared them in that sphere of their, where, they, where they're at, what they do. Same thing with the soldiers, remember? Jesus said, well, they said, well, how, what, is it, what do we got to do, Lord, to come? And he says, don't abuse. Because that, again, was probably what they were doing. This was this sin. Jesus was poking specifically at those subtle areas of sin. And we see, you can, you can come up with a lot of examples as I have. Mark. Yeah. Verse 5. He's going to give an example. He talks about these former, these older women, in Old Testament women, he says, who trusted in God. So you're exactly right. This is this fixed hope in God period that we focus on. I, I struggle with sometimes thinking about Sarah because I'm kind of, I was just going through the read-through, you know, the Bible. Of course, you just read through chapter 16 and read through 21 and here Sarah is like doing stuff that I struggled with. But yet, Peter chose her. He put in one word in, is what he's drawing this example from that the Holy Spirit has this character that's behind it, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. Okay, so here we are, structure of the text. So that background, is, I felt it was to get us thinking of this. Last week, in your handout there, is that we have submission. All, those are all the same from last week because we never got it to it last week. So in your handout, I'm going to pick up with submission to husbands so we didn't get to it at all last week. We got close, but we didn't quite get there. So let's let's start with submission to husbands, verses one and two, and let's if someone could be so gracious to read the six verses. We're gonna not seven, we're gonna hold on seven until next week. But let's read the first six verses today. But let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. Holy woman also, who hopes in God, who there obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, have become his children to do what is right. Thank you. When we have looked up, going through this study of First Peter, we're at this place of navigating. And he specifically now is going to help us to see within relationships and within the home how we can navigate specifically using God's Word specifically and as it relates to some of the things within our own lives that are struggling. Our objective as we look with this is that we've talked previously about this, that whether you're, whatever place you're at, that essentially that there is obedience that will always be patterned within the submission of Christ. And by doing so, we'll please Him and be our testimony. And that's what this last passage said, is that it was precious in the sight of God. 
And as we broke down this passage of First Peter, is that we've had this aspect of, first of all, the submission that we have, there's three sections we're looking at, and today we're combining the, the command to submission, the motive, our extent, and really some application. And then next week we'll tackle this reason for the submission as it specifically addresses um, to the husbands. But as we looked at that, the structure of this text com- looks specifically at three sections. Silence, adornment, and example. It, it's really divided up in those three sections. It's silence, which is going to characterize wives whose husbands are, in this case, the example is that they're specifically, they're lost and hostile to the faith. Because what I want to understand is, is that how do I know that there is a rejection? One is that we're going to look at two passages that will help us to see that there is this reference to being disobedient to the word. So therefore, likely there is rejection by this husband. Verses 3 and 4 deal specifically with woman's attitude towards adornment, this outward appearance contrasted to the inward part. And then finally in verses 5 and 6 will be our attention to the example of godly women. Now, it says that in the same way that you wives, it says, in this, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. Now, this expression in the same way refers to in 1 Peter 3, 1, and it's actually the same thing with the, with the Timothy passage, which is a parallel to this. This likewise means a continuation of the thought. And so, therefore, it is literally going back to the continuation of the thought that we begin in verse 13 with the civic responsibilities of submission, and also to 18 where it starts the submission to um, the master in that situation. So it is, whenever we see this in the same way it refers to it, so as we look at and understand this. The example that is set, and we see specifically in all three of those, goes points right back to the example we see where in chapter 2, Verse 21, that says, for, for to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example, that you should follow in his footsteps. Christian wives are instructed to submit to their own husbands. Now, as we go through this, is that there's this instruction that's specifically given. The first instruction is to submit to her own husbands. The first thing, we, as we look at this, it's basically is that who is she requ- requested to submit to? Her own husband. Does that, what about other men? No. Right. Her own husband, specifically. In all of the passages, there is this word own. This is this God-ordained institution. This is this relationship that exists, and there is this command to submit to your own. Now, I'm going to give you a perspective in that. If you're an unbelieving, excuse me, unbelieving husband with a believing wife that now has a new identity in Christ, what about, put it in today's context, where they're getting counsel? from another man. Biblical counsel. Thoughts. Mark. Mm-hmm. 
that's, that's, that's very helpful because as we look at it is that this new identity that this believer has in Christ, there literally it's the church that surrounds this new person and this these relations this relationship. So we'll try to unbundle that as we go through this a little bit more as we look at some of the motives of that into that woman even in that that new sphere because. Again, when I talk about the, you know, you look at these subtle sins, where Satan is going to work is really the opposite of that, not to the the value of that counsel, but literally to maybe even question the relationships that she's in. Saying, boy, I, I got, I have to change this. Okay? Yeah, you painted that picture of the I'm kind of thinking the first thing in my mind, if I was her, got to be a way out of this. Go back. So on that thought, what is she not saying? No, you're right. What she is not, what, what, what does Peter not tell the Christian wife to do? He doesn't tell her to divorce her. Okay. So in other words, when you go with me, if you could, to 1 Corinthians 7. I think this is an important passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Okay, but I'm just I'm talking about is that she didn't leave him. In other words, oh, or the no, I'm just saying that there, she is gonna, she's asked to stay in this relationship. Okay, in other words, there isn't. You're exactly right. There's not an option there. But again, contextually, is that even let's apply it to today, even. Okay, is that because our tendency is to say we got to get out. Okay. Well, if she's here for her life. Yeah. I might be seeking protection and rest from you know the church. I mean, there may have been those opportunities where you know, women might have feared for their life because of the situation and gone to Peter or gone to the leaders of the church and said, help me. Peter, turn around and go, I want you to go back to your husband. I want you to go, wait a minute. I mean, it's kind of contradictory to your first thought. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, actually, you have the living testimony of, of Peter 2, 12, where it is literally of the observation of a godly woman that God has honored that by coming down. That's what it's about. That is not a promise. That's not a guarantee. But yet, that is the testimony of an obedience, obedience to God's word, allowing that. Because there is, when it talks about the uh, sanctif- where the husband is sanctified in this passage here, let's read it. Because what it means by that, it's not a sanctification that relates in, in, in salvation. It is the sanctification of the blessing that you are set apart because of her. Her obedience to Christ. Let's look at that. But the, uh, the, um, Chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians. Now, t- now to the married I command, yet, but uh, not, I, not I, but the Lord. A wife is not to depart from her husband. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried for or be reconciled to her husband, and her husband is not to divorce his wife. But to the rest, I, not the Lord, say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to, leave, to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children will be unclean, but now they are holy. And again, in that, this, this, it is literally this blessing 
So the interpretation is not that that's a guarantee that you're going to come to faith. But God honors that commitment, that obedience of the wife or the husband, literally. Mark, great. This is, I mean, this is an These are the, the literally the examples that we have. Look at Christ's example and the suffering. Um, no purposeful, but it was this fixed hope. I believe that that is only can be the testimony of those that uphold that commitment. And so, Gabe, in this example, contextually, it's that that's not an option. You're right. That there's no way out. But yet, that is the command. And the culture today, though, that doesn't settle well with that. Okay, what else is she not? Okay, what else Peter is not instructing? And, and to me, this ties a little bit to the these words. Okay, because it, and he references going back to First Peter, he talks. He says in there that you be won by the conduct without a word. Okay, so. Let's tackle this now. What does that mean without a word? Is it complete, literal silence? Or is it, don't say specific things? And I'm going to start with words. Okay, I'm going to start with what not to do. And the couple of choice passages are actually some old proverb passages that don't speak kindly of words. Okay, I'll start with Proverbs 19, verse, and you tell me what it looks like. Verse, chapter of Proverbs 19, verse uh, 13. It says, A foolish son is the ruin of his father, and the contentions of a wife are continually dripping. What's the picture you have of that? And it's driving me crazy. Call in the plumber ASAP. A, a compliment to that is actually just go over to chapter tw- uh, chapter twenty one. You're there after there Proverbs, but Proverbs twenty one, verse nine for a little extra credit. There says, "Better to dwell in a corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a contentious woman." Verse nineteen adds it again in case you didn't read it the first time. Better to dwell in the wilderness. Than with a contentious and angry woman. Proverbs 21, 9 and 19. So what Peter is not saying is, is that, look, don't nag, don't debate, don't engage with her husband about the gospel. And I'm going to talk about two things on that. Do you think it is literally silent? You don't, don't say a word. Is there, is that helpful? Yes, I believe it is. There is... There is value in being still. God uses stillness, quietness. At the same time, the opposite of this, as we read some of these examples, is that it is not this wife that is going to... Did I give you a track today? You know, here, let me make sure you know. You know Kim's giving Terry his daily track. It's sitting there by his coffee in the morning. You know, so make sure you read it. It's there by the bedside at night. You know, and it's sort of like... Come on, come on, come on. This is this aspect of this nagging, debating. In other words, this that can literally, as it relates to the gospel, that's going to do a turnoff. Because I think that when you, when you look at this, is that there is 
I believe that there is a rejection already. Okay? And how do, how, how do I, I know that? Whenever you see this const, the context of the, the disobedient, okay? Let's go back to the chapter 3 of First Peter for a second. Okay? And see where it says in verse 1, Wives, likewise, be submissive, submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word. When you, when you look at the choice of words, is that you look at how Peter uses the word or the opposite of that word. Okay? So within the context is that the two verses that we see, because is that in this case, is that he, is, he did not obey. So therefore he is disobedient. Okay? Disobedient, not, if some do not obey the word. Now go back and just look briefly at, at chapter 1, verse 2. And you see in verse verse one, chapter two of verse, excuse me, chapter one, verse two, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Chapter two, verse eight, and here this one is I think a little bit even more clear. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious, but to those who are disobedient. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is unbelief that we see in their... It's unbelief. It's, they're disobedient to the word. They have rejected the word. So I believe that as Peter is specifically saying that even if some do not obey the word, is that likely this husband has rejected the word. Possibly from his own wife. And so therefore, if there is this... I'm gonna, you know, you're gonna get this. Put earphones on in your head at night when you're sleeping. This is, again, we have a disobedient situation. It's interesting, right? Get in the middle and say, not that, you know, on this particular topic, you have a firm grasp of it or not. He doesn't say that. He's kind of saying, you know, yeah, I get it. They're not listening to to your interpretation of the word. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, he's not saying they're not listening to necessarily yeah. speaking English. Okay. I don't know. <laughs> Kind of like he's not getting in the middle of the, maybe a um, discussion they may be having. Well, that's not what it says. That is what it says. It doesn't matter. Here's the point. Yeah, in, in, in a, 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 the culture itself, that it, um, you have a wife sharing the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Like I have my own religion. You know, I'm not. Don't bother me. That type of thing. There's complete rejection to this. Now, the third piece of this, and I keep that thought, is this appealing to subtle persuasion. Okay. This appeal, what he's not saying is this appealing to subtle persuasion. And I want to look at a couple of verses in here because I think it's, it's, it's helpful. And it, go with me to Luke chapter 21, if you could. Luke chapter 21. In Luke chapter 21, verses 12 through 15, and I'm specifically going to look at verse 14. Come and read uh, 12, 13, 14, and 15. These things you will be brought before kings and rulers, will turn out for you as an occasion. Therefore, settle it in your hearts not to meditate beforehand. The, the disciples want they want the handwritten notes, you know. They okay, I, I got this ready, you know, so always here ready for me to go. I've written it out so my testimony to you know preach Christ. Here it is. So here we go, upside down. Let me read this to you going through, okay. Jesus is saying to his disciples, forget it. 
Do not premeditate. Don't be thinking about Don't be writing this stuff out. And this is the subtle aspect of it, is that you can say, hmm, I know how I can get to my husband. Let me write this all out for him, and this will be the way that he will get that information to him, and he'll understand that. They're contrary. I love the passages. Um, you can look these up, but you know, 1 Corinthians 2, 1-5, to and 2 Corinthians 2, 17, where Paul is saying, I am not a very good speaker, but I'm, I'll let the Holy Spirit guide the, the words that I'm going to say. And so that what Peter is saying is that, look, the submission that we see is that we're not going to do this. Rather than words, where does he go? Rather than words, then, is that he specifically provides examples that they're going to be without a word. Maybe one by the conduct of their wives. It is their behavior. And it's not what she says, it's what she is. So, it doesn't mean that you're not ever going to talk, but it literally, though, it is, there is value in silence. In this, in this situation, it is this behavior, it is this live, living, walking, working, doing testimony, Christ-likeness in this woman, what she did. That is what Peter then draws as an example in Sarah. It's sort of like, well, let me show you what it looks like. You have those examples also. The principles that we see within God's Word is, is very clear. Ephesians 5.22, Colossians 3.18, Titus, Wives, be submissive to your husbands. The disobedient of the Word, we see clearly, it speaks specifically of an unbelieving husband. And the wives are instructed then, as he progresses in here, to be faithful. It says that they will be won by the conduct of their wives. And what is the conduct that they see? And What do the husbands see? And what they see is lived out behavior with respect to your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. It points to this call for Christian wives to be faithful. The missive one to be faithful to. Now what is chaste? and respectful denote. What does that mean to you? Pardon? Humility? Okay. Okay. It is this, describe and you can add humility, this undefiled character. It is this purity literally within the character. It has this meaning of pure holiness. And it's lived out, it's in respect of both the character and the conduct. Some some great passages to complement this to take a look at specifically as it relates, it's I love the, the Philippians 4 is, is that you know, what is honorable, what is kind. You focus on these types of things. It's this example, literally, of this uh, chaste and this conduct that's lived out. Now, when this is played out specifically, is that there is not only, there is an aspect of this purity that has, uh, it speaks specifically also of sexual purity as well. And I, I, I submit that because again, within a relationship that is different, in this case a believing wife with a non-believing husband, is that this husband, knowing that his wife has a whole new identity in Christ, has a church, family, friends, that surround this person, is that things this husband have would see 
faithfulness lived out in his wife, that even more so through a chaste and respectful behavior. It's, that, it's the reverence even towards her husband. Verse 3 and 4. What does it play forward into? It says, Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. The third principle, Christian wives are instructed to be modest. Modest. The parallel passage is also found in 1 Timothy 2, 9 and 10. And it's interesting, and that one says in the same, in the same manner, and it tells specific wives. So what does adornment mean? We already discussed that. This is this arranging, to put in order, to make ready. That was what I, we said, we're going to adorn our classroom here when you were all in groups and here, so we get back into order. Now, while outward appearances affect every believer, male or female, Peter instructs married women about their priorities concerning true beauty. Now, let's just talk about this for a second. True outward adornment. This morning, you got up and you got dressed. What motivated you to wear what you wore today? Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say it was cold outside. Yeah. Okay, the cold. Right? Nicole. I don't know if you, did anybody even give that a thought? Many times we do things and we, I mean, I, I did take a shower for you. I did comb my hair for you today. Uh, you know, the outward appearance, did I think about it? I decided to wear a coat today because I wanted to have this lapel thing easier for this. Okay? That's, that was my motivation for that. And I'm regretting it because it's extremely warm in here. It is. <laughs> I'm going to come back to, the again, our motivations and what we wear. And I think that that's a fair question to ask. Within the culture as it is, and, and let me just go back to this, what do we know? And specifically, there is this aspect of the culture that it is all about the outward appearance. I would submit that it, in many respects it's no different today. It may look a little different um, as far as how women dressed back in that culture, how they dress in this culture, maybe, maybe not. But without question, it was this, this consuming aspect of their lives was their outward appearance, how they looked within that culture. Yeah, actually, she looked pretty good, though, too, in Proverbs 31, because it says she makes her tapestry for herself. Her clothing is fine linen, linen and purple. She looked very good. Correct. Yeah, because she doesn't seem very, maybe just in the past, she doesn't seem very submissive or gentle or quiet because she's doing all these things. She seems very but, it, but it follows, yeah, though. Yeah, I agree, but I'm just saying, like, that, that's what I'm saying is I think that that can exist in a, also submission. You think of submission as like, like there was one woman can be capable of. The, the, the verse that follows that is that she, she it says that her, her husband is known in the gates. It's because of what she, it's how she is representing that. She is. She is honoring her husband as that, and she's honoring God. Her motivations are, she does become that virtuous wife. That's this example that we have. But I, I share the point is, is that, is that she, it's okay to dress up to look good. But why and for what purpose is really, in other words, within the context of what Peter is teaching, remember, you have a believing wife and a non-believing husband. The subtle sins is that why are you looking so good today? 
not for my unbelieving husband. It is for the rest of the men in the church. Where I'm just using that as an example here is that what motivates that? What uh, we see it. Yeah, yeah, you're good. Okay. Um, in this in this passage, uh, if the one I wanted to look at was just really, uh, and I'm about to. Build up while you're yeah, and I'm out of time. Apologize, but uh, 23, five, and six. I just I'll read that in uh, Matthew because 23, five, and six. Maybe, maybe, maybe. Um, it, it speaks specifically about again. Jesus is characterizing these Pharisees, which is sort of the opposite. Knows what motivates them. Um, for they bind heavy burdens hard to bear and they lay them on, on men's shoulders but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers but all their works they do to be seen by men they make their phylacteries broad enlarge the borders of their garments they love the best places at feasts the best seats in the synagogues greetings in the marketplaces to be called by men rabbi, rabbi and so this in other words all of the attention is on me and that is this opposite where he is specifically to instructing these women, believing women, that your focus should be primarily on an inner person of the heart. The outward appearance and what we choose to wear is okay. It's what the motivation is. Um, it would be for time at, another, at some other point in the future. But if you think about even the traditions of church and the out, outward appearance and what people wore in church and how that's changed over time and you know some thoughts on that even literally but even what is ultimately the motivation behind what, what people did um, I'm going to stop at this point because I, I want to get it spend a little time because what is interesting is is that we see the Lord's indictment of this impure motivation and it goes right back to Israel and just literally condemning Israel for this outward wrong motive that we see and so in what the wife's focus will be. So um, we continue. So let's see, where did we I, I leave off? So we're, st- well, we'll try again next week. Anyway. <laughs> Hopefully this, is, this has been helpful. And uh, love the dis- love the discussion. On that. Any thoughts before we close in prayer? Herb, could I ask you to close in prayer? I appreciate it. Great, thanks. Marty, thank you uh, for your time to study culture, but uh, we are to be different. And just pray that it's just out of different reflects your glory, and this is part of that. Prayer time. Uh, Amen. Thank you. <laughs>